is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A, a great day to take a look at the legacy of what might have been a great man. Or was he? Uh, we haven't talked a great deal about Mikhail Gorbachev, the uh, late leader and yes he was a dictator like the other dictators before him except very very different in some ways which is what uh, Paul Kangor writes about in an utterly fascinating piece I always enjoy what Professor Kangor writes writes he is the senior director and chief academic fellow for the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College he is also a professor of political science at Grove City he is also a best selling author. His most recent piece begins that uh, I have written so much, he's talking about himself now, about Mikhail Gorbachev and so many articles and books that it's impossible to try to sum up the man's life and legacy. And one of the reasons for that is there's still a big mystery about Gorbachev that uh, nobody knows really the answer to, maybe not even Paul Kangor. Paul, thanks for joining us. And uh, first off, uh, were you at all surprised at the news that uh, Putin announced that he will not attend the uh, the funeral of Mikhail Gorbachev, his predecessor as, as Russian leader? Yeah, I'm not surprised, Michael. And, you know, I don't know what exactly Gorbachev's view was on Putin toward the end, although somebody tipped me off today and said, hey, you need to read the piece in the New York Times. I guess there's a piece in the Times on that today. But but I, I sort of followed him on Putin over the years when Putin first came in, March of 2000. And you can see Gorbachev, you know, kind of like a lot of us and myself, frankly. I mean, at first I thought, well, Putin here, I mean, this guy wants a 15 percent flat tax rate. <laughs> he's, he's, um, he's putting the first restrictions on abortion in Russia since, since Stalin, of all people. Uh, you know, the guy is, it doesn't seem to be a communist. I think I like this guy. And, you know, then he just kind of slowly got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think that's where Gorbachev got to as well in his assessment of Putin. And Putin didn't like that, um, obviously. Now, I will say one thing, they throw kind of a wrench in all of this. Um, and, and, I, and I quote this in the American Spectator piece. Mikhail Gorbachev never wanted the USSR to disintegrate. And, and in fact, in his resignation speech on December 25th, 1991, he said that he, quote, stood firmly for the preservation of the union state, the unity of a country. He said events went a different way. The policy prevailed of dismembering this country and disuniting the state with which I cannot agree, unquote. And ironically, that's Vladimir Putin's position <laughs> of, of all things. But but I don't know that, um, that Gorbachev would have invaded Ukraine in the year 2022, Right after all of this. But now that said, Gorbachev in 1989, 90, did use limited force in some of the Baltic states and Georgia, um, never on the scale of what Putin has done in the Ukraine. But but ironically, in one sense, maybe I'd even write something about this. The, the one thing the two did kind of hold together, right, is that they wanted to hold together the, the USSR. 
Um, albeit in Gorbachev's case, you know, kinder, better, gentler USSR, you know, not a communist, totalitarian, Stalinist USSR. Well, the striking thing is there were 15 uh, Soviet socialist republics uh, other than the Russian Federation. And uh, all of the 15 uh, uh, d achieved independence under Gorbachev. He I clearly could have used the kind of force that uh, Putin is is using now. I mean, does does anyone really believe that the the Russians uh, since Gorbachev left that under Yeltsin and and then Putin that the the Russians have built up their military, improved their military compared to where it was in the late eighties? Well, it's a good question. And, and actually, by the late 80s, it was in pretty bad shape. In fact, after um, – and this is another negative thing about Gorbachev. After a 10-year war in Afghanistan from uh, you know Christmas Day again, Christmas Day in 1979, when the Soviets invaded under Brezhnev, until Gorbachev pulled out the troops in 1989 – um, their military got really hammered, and Gorbachev tried to win that war initially. In fact, one of the most tense moments in the history of, of Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev ever, and we now have the official memcons, the memoranda of conversation, uh, declassified and available from the Geneva summit in November 1985. Reagan is sort of letting loose on Gorbachev from across the table, and he's reading stories about Red Army soldiers leaving booby-trapped toys for kids in Afghanistan, about the bombing of villages in Afghanistan by, you know, by, by Russian uh, gunships or helicopters. And, and Reagan barks at Gorbachev. He said, are you guys still trying to take over the world? And Gorbachev got red in the face and yelled back at Reagan. Now, eventually, those two became quick buddies, so much so that that Reagan was calling Gorbachev Mike by <laughs> by the end of the of the Geneva summit, but 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 at first that was Gorbachev tried to win that war, couldn't do it, and kind of like him trying to hold together the Soviet Union, these things got out of his control, unraveled to a point that he didn't expect, and we give him most credit, I guess, in the end for peacefully letting these things come apart. But, but he's, he's, a, he's a really complicated figure. And I must add here, too, um, in his defense, the policy of Glasnost with more religious freedom, um, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, he did all of that, and that was great. He called off what um, you know, the wholesale war on religion, as he described what his predecessors, his predecessors did. And he also, and this was, this was gigantic, in February of 1990, it was Gorbachev who removed Article 6 from the Soviet Constitution, which granted the Communist Party of the Soviet Union the exclusive political monopoly as the only legalized political power in all of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev changed that. Reagan didn't do that. Gorbachev did that. Okay, so the, he's this the, really mixed bag. The, the, yeah. the one uh, question that you pose in your article on American Spectator, and we're very glad to link it at our website at michaelmedved.com so people can read for yourself, is um, you're the, the senior director of the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College. When it comes to freedom... 
I, I think obviously the the record is very mixed on Gorbachev. When it comes to faith, it's another matter in terms of calling off, as you just put it, the war against religion that the Russians, the Soviets had been waging since 1917 and 1918. And what is fascinating here, and I'd never read before, is all the speculation by people who knew him that he was a, as Reagan put it, uh, a closet Christian, and that he may have had a deeper conversion later in life. Uh, all of that is fascinating because it does seem to have mattered to Mikhail Gorbachev. I'm speaking to Paul Kangor. He is the uh, author of many books about the relationships of prime figures in ending the Cold War, including Ronald Reagan, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Pope uh, John Paul the second. Uh, we will be right back on the Michael Medved show with uh, more with Paul Kangor about faith and Mr. Gorbachev. Yeah, uh, Paul, you've written books about faith and Ronald Reagan. You've even written books about faith and uh, leading Democrats. Uh, what about faith and Mikhail Gorbachev? We will be right back with Paul Kangor of Grove City College coming right up. Michael Medved Show, uh, joined by Paul Kangor, who's Senior Director and Chief Academic Fellow for the Institute for Faith and Freedom of uh, beautiful Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, where he is also a professor of political science. And he has written must-read books about President Reagan and about Pope John Paul II, particularly about their friendship and he also developed President Reagan something of a friendship uh, with with Mikhail Gorbachev, as uh, uh, Professor Kangor just explained to us. He got to know him well enough to call him Mike, uh, which <laughs> which which is interesting to think about. But President Reagan also had come to believe that uh, Gorbachev was a believer in a higher power and may even have been at the time of his premiership in in Russia. Uh, he may have been a believing Christian. What gave him that impression? Yeah, in fact, Ronald Reagan really became obsessed with this, Michael. He, and, and there was a number of different references that Gorbachev made to um, to Reagan during these meetings. He would say things like, well, God bless you and 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 we're here, um, you know. Thank God, maybe we could, uh, by the grace of God, bring peace. All these other different references. He was he he said these things all the time, and it really struck Ronald Reagan. And you got to think back to the fact that you know this was, as Reagan rightly called it, the evil empire. Right? I mean, Soviet leaders, you know, Soviet leaders were supposed to be atheists. That's how it was. Michael Deaver, who was one of Reagan's closest aides, said that that Reagan called him as soon as he got back from Geneva, excited. He wanted to talk to Mike directly. 
And, and he said to him, he said, Mike, he believes, he believes. In fact, I, I heard Deaver actually talk about it. He said it that way. So Reagan said, he believes. And, and Deaver knew immediately what Reagan was talking about. And, and, and he said, you mean to say that you, you're telling me that the general secretary of the Soviet Union b- believes in God? And then Reagan walked it back just a little bit. He said, well, I don't know, Mike, but I honestly think the guy believes in a higher power. And, and I should add here, too, that, that this was something that not only Reagan became fascinated by, Reagan almost obsessed by, but, but Pope John Paul II, the same way. Um, he, he thought that Gorbachev might have been a believer. He later told people that he thought Gorbachev was a, quote, providential man, unquote. And, and by that, John Paul II seemed to think that, that Gorbachev, whether he believed in God or not, was maybe an instrument of a higher power that had come in to bring faith back to the USSR. And the, um, there, there's, a, there's a remarkable meeting, what was the date? December 1st, 1989, and it was at the Vatican. And, and Mikhail Gorbachev visited the Vatican. He was the first and only Soviet leader ever to visit the Vatican. And we now have the, 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 de- the declassified transcript of this, too. He and John Paul II met for about 70 minutes. They talked alternately in Russian and Polish because John Paul II could speak like seven different languages. And uh, the people who watched this said Gorbachev was practically shaking. He was so so nervous about this. And, and John Paul II sort of put him at ease. They end up holding this really good conversation. And then at the end of all of it, when Gorbachev is kind of calmed down, they walk out of the Vatican Library Gorbachev introduces John Paul II to his wife, Ryeza, who we knew was an atheist, pretty hardcore atheist. And he said, uh, Ryeza, I introduce you to His Holiness, Pope John Paul II. Besides being the highest moral authority on earth, he's a Slav, just like us. <laughs> and, and John Paul II laughed and said, yes, yes, I'm the first Slavic pope. And then he said, uh, he said I'm sure that Providence paved the way for this meeting. And we don't know what the response was of Ryeza and Gorbachev at that point, but uh, but Gorbachev over the years would come to seeming, seemingly be um, more and more sympathetic to religion. And I talk about this in the Spectator piece. Of all things, a, a London Telegraph reporter is walking through Assisi in Italy in early March 2008, and he walks by the tomb of St. Francis. And he looks down and he sees what he thinks is Mikhail Gorbachev on his knees praying. And he, and he said to him, you know, I, you know, I'm sorry, sir, I, I know this is a special moment, but you know, aren't you Mikhail Gorbachev? And, and Gorbachev says, yes, yes, I am Mikhail Gorbachev. And, and, and he says, what, what are you doing here? And, and very soon, a few days after that, the Telegraph reported in a story that Mikhail Gorbachev had become a Christian, you know, maybe a Catholic, perhaps. And then just a few days after that, Gorbachev came out publicly and said, no, I have not become a Christian. I have not become a believer. I'm still an atheist. But, but this is something that um, has always intrigued people about Gorbachev until the day he died, just a few days ago. I don't think he ever told anybody what he really believed about a higher power. Well, we know at the funeral that uh, uh, that Putin is not going to make it. He says he's too busy losing the war. Um, God willing. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, he says he's too busy. 
And I can imagine that. I mean, it, uh, obviously, he's got a lot on his plate right now. Uh, right. But is there any talk of uh, any religious elements that any family members or uh, because I, I, I don't even know. Is there any indication that any of the they had children, right, Raisa and Mikhail? Yeah, I think they had one or two, and and they. I just read a really long biography of Gorbachev by William Taubman. I wrote a review of it for a Claremont Review of Books, and I complained that in that thousand-page tome, I learned everything about Gorbachev except his faith. And this is what happens with a lot of these secular historians. They don't care about faith. And they, there's they, evidence, they there's evidence that Gorbachev's that. family, like his mother, was a faithful Christian, wasn't she? That's right. In fact, her name was Maria. She secretly baptized Gorbachev. Three of his four grandparents were believers. Um, the grandmother, the mother would pull a cross from the, from the mantle above the fireplace and bless him with it when, when he was young. And Gorbachev told Reagan about this. Gorbachev told John Paul II about it. So, so we know all of those things, too. Um, it, 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 Stalin's daughter ended up becoming a Christian. She was converted um, through, I think, not through Malcolm Muggeridge, but Malcolm Muggeridge got to know her and used to talk about it. Uh, in fact, she died just, I think, about a year ago, Michael, right? Sviatlana you're that talking was, that about. Was pretty, yeah, 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 that was, that was pretty recent. So, so you, you never know. I don't know where the, where the rest of the family was. But I talked to people who talked to Gorbachev, including Michael Reagan. Michael Reagan asked him point blank one time when Michael Reagan was with him. This was, this was a public forum. He said, tell me, what do you believe about God? And he just dodged the question. Uh, Paul Kangor never dodges questions. And you can read his outstanding piece, Mikhail Gorbachev Meets His Maker. Uh, and you can meet more of Paul Kangor. Go to michaelmedved.com and the link toward uh, his latest contribution from Grove City College. We'll be right back. Breaking news. Uh, there are two uh, new sentences that are being handed out uh, regarding the January 6th riots. And you may say, oh, no, January 6th again. Well, when you have uh, 140 police officers who uh, received med serious medical attention, some of whom were permanently uh, damaged and injured by the violence, it, it is and remains a, a serious problem with serious consequences for the leading participants the uh, former New York City Police Department officer who attacked, and you can watch the video, I mean, it's pretty clear, he attacked police during the Capitol Hill riot, received the longest January 6th sentence so far, 10 years. 10 years. A, a jury in May found Thomas Webster guilty of assaulting a D.C. officer with a flagpole and also convicted him of other charges, including disorderly conduct and violent conduct while carrying a deadly or dangerous weapon on the Capitol grounds. Webster argued self-defense at his trial. 
and the fact that he was a, uh, a former officer actually counted against him in the sense that it, it, it made it very clear that he had to understand that what he was doing was illegal and immoral. Attacking your fellow police officers because they are doing their job and defending the Capitol building is appalling. Uh, I don't know uh, when he will be eligible for parole with his 10-year sentence. Uh, also, there's a, uh, an individual named Julian Cater who admitted he used chemical spray on officers defending the Capitol, including Brian Sicknick, who was injured while attempting to hold back a violent crowd, and he collapsed incorrectly, said that Sicknick collapsed while attempting to hold back a violent crowd. He collapsed hours later. Uh, the uh, Pennsylvania man, Cater, pleaded guilty Thursday to a chemical spray assault on three police officers in the January 6, 2021 Capitol attack, including Brian Sicknick. In a deal with federal prosecutors, Julian Cater, a smoothie shop owner, of State College, Pennsylvania, that's where Penn State University is located, admitted to assaulting and injuring law enforcement officers with a dangerous weapon, along with uh, co-defendant George Tanios. Cater had faced a 10-count indictment that included felony charges of rioting and obstructing Congress's confirmation of Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. Uh, Tanios pleaded guilty on July 27th of this year to reduced uh, misdemeanor charges. Uh, this uh, all is going on at the same time that uh, there was a statement about the uh, judge that everyone had been waiting for, a federal judge, according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, judge Eileen Cannon said she would make public a more detailed list of the items that the FBI took during its search uh, last month. It is last month already. It was August 8th was the search. During its search of uh, former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, opening the prospect of a much fuller picture of what documents might be among the classified material seized. Apparently no decision yet about the idea of a special master, which the Trump legal forces had called for. Uh, there is this, uh, which I find fascinating. Uh, President Trump himself called directly into the TV network work Real America's Voice to um, make sure that people know that he did not leave the papers on the floor, as was indicated by that now famous photograph that was provided by the Department of Justice. Uh, this is what President Trump had to say to uh, Real America's Voice concerning the classified documents that were depicted in that photograph. Listen. A lot of people think that when you walk into my office, I have confidential documents or whatever it may be, all declassified. But I had confidential documents spread out all over my far floor. 
and uh, like a slob, like I'm sitting there reading these documents all day long, or somebody else would be. It's so it's so dishonest when you look at it. And so people were were concerned because they said, "Gee, you know, that's a strange scene." You look at the floor and you see documents, right? They have cover sheets of documents. No, they put them there, John, and they put them there in a messy fashion. And then they took a picture and they released it to the public. And this is what we're dealing with with these people. Okay, uh, there's actually a whole huge analysis of this now famous photograph. And it is a striking photograph. I think almost everyone has seen it. Uh, there are a bunch of documents where they have very clearly marked on them uh, secret SCA, secret SCI, uh, and secret, secret, secret. In other words, they, they are fairly clearly marked. And the New York Times reports the Justice Department used 35 pages of type in a court filing on Tuesday to provide new details of its investigation into former President Donald J. Trump's handling of hundreds of classified documents. But the most easily digestible element of the filing was appended at the end. It was a single photograph showing documents with secret and top-secret markings arrayed on a patterned carpet. And they give the caption to the, uh, the photograph at the New York Times. It says, the folders were arrayed by agents at Mar-a-Lago. They were not found scattered on the floor, law enforcement officials said. So President Trump is accused of many things. He's not accused of being a slob, as he had just indicated. He'll be relieved to hear that. The, um, on Wednesday, Mr. Trump took to his social media site to say that the FBI, during the raid of Mar-a-Lago, threw documents haphazardly all over the floor, perhaps pretending that it was me that did it, and then started taking pictures of them for the public to see. But the genesis of the photograph appears to be in keeping with standard protocols for how federal agents handle evidence uh, that uh, they come across in a search. The folders were arrayed by agents of the Mar-a-Lago at Mar-a-Lago after being removed from what the filing indicated was Mr. Trump's private office they were not discovered scattered on the floor, according to two federal law enforcement officials. The Justice Department would not comment on the specifics of the photograph, but it is standard practice for the FBI to take evidentiary pictures of materials recovered in a search to ensure that items are properly cataloged and accounted for. The marking of 2A on a folded piece of paper in the picture corresponds to a listing in the inventory of items seized in the search that was made public along with the search warrant. In that inventory, the item marked as 2A was described as various classified top-secret SCI documents. One of the points that I think has been made here was that uh, one element of the photo, as the Justice Department pointed out in its filing yesterday, is that none of the folders bear a label or a stamp or any inscription of any kind indicating that Mr. Trump had declassified them, as he has periodically claimed when asked about his retention of government materials requested by the National Archives. Uh, we will be right back with uh, surprising results of another special election campaign. This one involving the celebrity known as Sarah Palin.
coming up on the Medvet Show. Medved show, there are partisan Democrats out there who are saying, oh, look, another sign about the Democrats gathering force and gathering support and no red wave out there. It's uh, going to be a blue wave. And uh, part of that is supposed to be the big speech tonight by Joe Biden. It'll actually be preceded by a big speech from Kevin McCarthy, uh, who can be an effective speaker. He has been in the past. We'll see how that goes. But um, the result of the congressional special election in Alaska, and I know it's complicated, but it's important to get it straight. Carl Rove had a very persuasive piece today in the Wall Street Journal about how uh, media have, I think, very predictably sort of hyped up the the gains that Democrats have made recently, and they're treating this election in Alaska the same way. Now, the truth of the matter is that about 60 percent of the votes that were cast in in the election in Alaska were cast for one of two Republicans, uh, either Sarah Palin or Nick Begich, who was her rival. But uh, Sarah Palin ended up uh, losing. What had happened here is that they have this ranked choice system, and I'll give you the the essence of it. The uh, the Washington Post covers it this way: uh, Democrat Mary Peltola has won the special election for the U.S. House in Alaska, defeating Republican Sarah Palin and becoming the first Alaska native. She's half native on her mother's side to win a seat in Congress as well as the first woman to clinch the state's at-large district. Peltola's win flips a seat that had long been in Republican hands. She will serve the remainder of a term left open by the sudden death of Representative Don Young in March. A young represented Alaska in Congress for... Jeremy, do you know how long he was there? He was was there for 49 years. 49 years. Incredible. He actually served the people of Alaska very well and helped bring them lots and lots of pork, which is, again, part of what Congress people do if they're successful. Peltola, who is Yup'ik, which is a, um, uh, a native Alaskan designation, she is a tribal fisheries manager and former state representative who led in the initial counts after the August 16th election. But her win wasn't assured until Wednesday when Alaska officials made decisive second-choice counts using the state's new ranked-choice voting system. Republican Nick the third, who finished third, was eliminated and his supporters' second-choice votes were distributed to the remaining candidates. Okay, the way this system is supposed to work, and 
it is, it is as Sarah Palin has said, and she said this before she lost, that it was a cockamamie system, and she is right about that. It, it is a system whereby you actually get to vote uh, four times, ideally. If there are four candidates who clear the primary, the top four in terms of the votes they get make it into the general election. And then in the general election, every voter gets to vote for four candidates, and you're supposed to rank them. This is my number one. This is my number two. This is my number three. This is my number four. Okay, there's no fourth here because the fourth guy, whose name was Al Gross, did the Gross thing and dropped out. He was an independent. So it left one Democrat and two Republicans. And the Democrat, not, neither the Democrat nor either of the Republicans got uh, more than 50% of the vote. So that means they start looking at the votes of the third-place finisher. The third-place finisher was Nick Begich, a Republican. He finished third. Sarah Palin finished second. The Democrat finished first. But, see, what happens is they then distribute the votes that had originally gone to the third-place finisher and they see if that actually uh, can uh, where those votes go. And what happened with those votes is they were evenly split enough because the Republicans failed to do something that everybody had told them to do. Kevin McCarthy had talked about this. Everybody else concerned with the Republican Party is what they needed to do is to get people to, okay, vote for one of the Republicans, vote for Sarah Palin or vote for Nick Begich, and then vote again for the next Republican, a second choice. But they didn't do that because the campaign was so nasty between Nick Begich and Sarah Palin. Uh, Proltola, the Democrat, had nearly 40% of first choice votes after preliminary counts, which put her... Uh, about 16,000 votes ahead of Palin. Half of the Alaskans who made Begich their first choice ranked Palin second. And 21% did not make a second choice. The remaining 29%, a surprisingly large fraction, even to some of Peltola supporters, ranked Peltola second, flipping from a Republican to a Democrat. In other words, if you took the votes that uh, that Nick Begich had, about a third of them went to Peltola, the Democrat, and that's why she ended up winning, uh, despite the fact that uh, uh, Begich and Palin together ended up with about 60% of the votes. Uh, the, the Democrat uh, actually won over Palin because of this ranked choice system by 5,200 votes. And the Post writes, Washington Post, Palin's defeat comes in her first campaign since she stepped down as Alaska's governor in 2009. A former President Donald Trump endorsed her enthusiastically and held the rally on her behalf in Anchorage. The rally is something to watch. Uh, Look, part of this goes back to uh, Sarah Palin's decision, which clearly counted against her. She had been elected governor of Alaska, and she was viewed as a rising star. I actually got some credit at the time because long before uh, Senator McCain had chosen her as his running mate, 
I had made a list of potential running mates, and I had, was the only one, I think, in the country who included Sarah Palin because she was great on TV, and she seemed to be an enthusiastic maverick, which was part of what uh, John McCain was trying to sell. In any event, uh, McCain picked her. Uh, the vice presidential nomination didn't work out, though she became a celebrity and she attracted a lot of energy and excitement to the McCain campaign that otherwise wouldn't have been there. And uh, But then after that campaign was over and shortly after, she resigned as governor. And she resigned as governor because she, now she was a celebrity and she had her own TV show. She had, I, I think, three different reality shows at different times. She had best-selling books, uh, she had a baby at home, if you'll recall, and a special needs baby, which was part of her situation. In any event, her comeback is put on hold. Now, let me say, they will have a rematch. Uh, Sarah Palin uh, will be running in the, uh, this is a special election, which uh, will allow Peltola, the Democrat, to serve in Congress up until January, and I think it's January 7th is the date that the new Congress is is sworn in. But uh, in November, before that, while Peltola is still the incumbent, they'll be having another election. And uh, I, it's unclear, it seems to me. I think Nick Begich may be a candidate again. But in one of the most Republican states in the union, and the largest state in the land area. So this congressperson in Alaska represents more territory than any other congressperson in the country. And I'll tell you why else it's it's so important, is that one of the things that President Trump was trying to do in the election was to get the election thrown into the House of Representatives. If you ever have an election come up where no candidate gets the 270 electoral votes you need for a majority, then under the Constitution, and this has happened twice, it happened in 1800 and it happened in 1824, the election gets thrown to the House of Representatives. And in, in that situation, every state gets one vote. So <laughs> this Alaska seat, this one seat, which is the only seat Alaska gets, actually controls an entire state, 1 50th of uh, what you need. Actually, it's 126th of what you need to be elected president of this greatest nation on God's green earth.